It is said that life is just a vapor. And I can remember growing up as a teenager in the summer, it seemed like summer afternoons would last forever. But alas, those pass and you move along and time moves so quickly. You understand why the writer of Proverbs understood in a very deep way that life is very brief. People become terrified in life and they realize that as they move forward that, that inevitably we all face eternity, all of us, one way or the other. Uh, and the decisions that we make in this life determine ultimately our destiny and, and our preparation for eternity. Now, folks don't want to think about that, and we don't talk about that a whole lot, and it seems to be rather unpleasant at times to discuss it, but it's a reality. And that's why I want to spend several weeks looking at and considering two of the greatest mysteries but realities in the world that we live in, heaven and hell. A lot of people begin to discuss what they think heaven is about, and I want to talk not what my opinion is, I don't want to share that with you, that really doesn't matter. I want to share what Scripture tells us that is true, that we can believe. I don't want to get confused in any way because sometimes people will take a small passage or pericope of Scripture and they can extrapolate all sorts of theology from it that doesn't exist. I don't want to do that. I want to look at the whole counsel of God and consider what it says about both of these very enduring and real subjects. It's not my desire to scare anybody into heaven. I don't think that's possible. Uh, the idea of hell is terrifying, and the reality of hell is more terrifying. But the truth is, Jesus didn't come to scare us anywhere. He came to love us and, and to call us to a salvation. When, when Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome, he reminds us of one of the greatest truths that we'll ever find. He said, knowing this, that the goodness of God called you to salvation. I grew up in a time when evangelists would come around about this time of year when it got very hot and they'd stick us in a tent, which is no place for anybody to be except maybe a Boy Scout uh, at night, and they'd put us in that tent and they'd begin to preach on hell and terrify people. And folks would come forward not saying they really wanted to embrace Christ, but they wanted to get away from hell. But the reality is you can't be afraid of hell and find your way safely to a Savior that loves you. You need to know that Savior. It's not about getting a ticket to heaven and not going to hell. It's about a relationship with your Creator that loves you, that gave everything for you, including His Son. And that's why I want you to understand about heaven and hell over the next few weeks. And hopefully, if you've not made a decision for, for either of those situations, you'll realize, number one, you don't have to make a decision for hell. It's already made for you. If you live in this life and you choose to not choose, then there is one destiny that is there, and it's real. Yet you have the opportunity to make a decision in life. And there's so many decisions laying out there before you, but this decision will change everything. It'll change your life today, your future here on earth, and especially your eternity. So let's look at that. Our study of Scripture will reveal five realities that that uh, demonstrate why we can be confident in the future considering heaven. And I want to think about heaven for a little while because there's a lot of myths and misnomers that are described about it. And I want to give you simply what Scripture says. We're going to begin our study of future matters. And another way of describing these two subjects 
is simply to call this eschatology or the study of things to come, that which is in our future. They include the second coming of Jesus, which involves the rapture, the tribulation period, and the millennium. All those things are combined in that, but I want to move beyond that and jettison towards something that is so much more important, heaven. Now, God will judge us, and those who refuse the gift of Christ will be judged immediately because we are told by Jesus himself that they will lift up their eyes and they'll be in torments. There's not a five-second warning or five-minute warning. There's not uh, a chance to make a last-minute decision because some people don't have that last minute. We don't know how we'll die. And that's why it's so important for us now to make that decision. I know people that push that off down the road and they shove it away and they'll say, one day I'll deal with that, but not today. What you're demonstrating when you do that is simply this about that decision. You're saying that I'm too busy making choices on my own to make a choice that will alter my life forever. I enjoy what I'm doing now. And the reality is you're given a life. We're all given a life to decide whether or not we'll accept the gift of salvation. If you've not made that decision, you keep pushing that down the road, or as they say, kicking the can down the road. If you're continuing to do that today, you need to settle that. You don't have a moment to waste. For this very moment, you could pass into eternity and not have that opportunity. It's just too important. It is interesting that in a survey that Newsweek did back in 2012, uh, 76% of Americans believed in heaven. Now, amazingly, about half that believed in hell. Uh, I don't fondly consider the idea of hell. I'm terrified of the idea of hell. Not that I'm terrified that I'll go there. I know that I'll be in heaven. If I cease to live right now, if I cease to breathe and my heart quit beating and my brain ceased to function and I were to collapse here, I would be in heaven. I know that. But what terrifies me about hell is there's so many people that don't take it seriously, and they need to. In a survey not long ago, 75% of people believe that their actions on earth determine whether or not they'll go to heaven. Now, let me correct one misnomer there. Some people think if I live a good enough life, if I do enough nice things, if, if, if I, in the scales of my conscience, make sure that I do more good things than bad things, then I'll go to heaven and God will understand. No, he won't. Because God has provided a very simple way to get to heaven. It's so simple that a five-year-old can make that decision. It's so simple that you can be seated where you are right now and no one can be you know, interfering with what you're doing and you can, in your consciousness, make a choice to accept Jesus as your Savior. And I've had people say, well, God will understand. No, He won't. He gave His Son to die on the cross. You have a choice to make. And it's important for you to make that choice. That conscious choice changes everything about you. Everything. It changes where your heart rests. It changes how you live your day. It changes how you begin your nights. If you close your eyes on your day and begin to talk to a heavenly father that you know personally, you are not only being thankful for the day, but you're preparing for your tomorrow. These things are so very important, and we must do this. There's some myths about heaven that I want to talk about today, and I think this is very important to discuss because there are many rumors that are floating around out there. 
several things really frustrate me. In fact, when, back some years ago when, when Jeff um, came on staff here, I was so tickled because Jeff and I, uh, we, we, we grew up alike. We grew up near each other but didn't know each other. And, and we grew up in church and we attended seminary and went through that. But several things we understand. Let me, this is a misnomer that has nothing to do with heaven or hell but has to do with, with music. There's always been a myth that angels sing. And I'll, I'll never forget when Jeff came here, one of the first things I said, I said, you do know that angels don't sing, they're messengers. He said, well, I know that. You know, we wrote a song years ago among Christians that began like this, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, that sounds beautiful, it's just not scriptural. Angels will appear and they'll be there. In fact, you know who will sing? All of you there will sing. Now, some of us won't because I don't have a singing voice. You know, it, it, it says make a melody to the Lord and make a joyful noise. I can't make either. I just kind of move my mouth and, and, and do the best I can, and I'll let you all do the singing. But you will have in eternity a responsibility to lift your voices to him. Angels who are messengers praise and worship God, and they communicate with us. And, uh, and we need to understand that. I want to talk today about heaven, though, and help you to understand a little bit about what is true and what isn't about heaven. Through the years, the doctrine of heaven and its accompanying rewards has become less important to the average Christian. And I don't understand why. Certainly, our current uh, affluence is a problem because in our society today, the poorest people that we know live in a house with four walls, a ceiling, and a floor. They, most of them, if they live in a project, a government-subsidized project in America, they have air conditioning, they have electricity, they have running water, uh, they have bathrooms. Uh, if you live in, in, in Alabama, you have, uh, in your project, you have cable television, and you probably have a cell phone. Now, that doesn't seem poor, does it? Poverty over the decades and the centuries has represented itself in many ways. In the world today, we have people that literally this morning are scavengers looking for something to eat to give them substance in their stomach because they're dying of starvation. Look around you in Selma. That's not happening in Selma. There are people that are so poor today that they do not have a roof over their head and literally they go to sleep at night and they're fearful that they will not wake the next morning. We're an affluent society in America today. We have just about everything you could ever imagine and because of that, heaven does not mean what it once meant to people. Heaven is a place that we have an assurance of but we don't see the reality of it because somehow living our lives the way we're living, we've got seemingly everything we need. Yet we live in a society that morally is bankrupt to the point that we are literally starving for truth. We don't know what to believe, and we've fallen away from so much of what God has for us. We have come to the conclusion that this is the best there is, the way we live now, and we'll just enjoy it, and, and maybe... Heaven is a little bit like what we have now. But if you believe that, you're far from, from what God wants you to understand about Him. Satan would have us believe that heaven is boring and, and that the real joy in, in life is found here on earth. And, and many people say, well, why, why would I want to go to heaven and just sit on a cloud and pluck a harp and stare around at things floating by? Now, that's the image Satan created of heaven, not God. I don't think there's another modern writer today that, can, that better understood heaven than C.S. Lewis. 
And I recommend the Chronicles of Narnia if you have a young child or you have a person that does not understand uh, the Bible to read them because the, the Chronicles of Narnia are basically an allegory or an image of what heaven is like. It's a way to, in a palatable way, take within yourself truths that are pretty tough and then suddenly as you look at them, you say, oh, that's, they were referring to this, that Narnia is actually a place with God and, and Aslan the lion is actually an image of Jesus coming to die for us. If you've read that story, you know this, it's C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. He tells in there uh, to a group, it's, it's Eustace Jill and Prince Ryland and, and, and Puddleglum, which I hate. Can I say Puddleglum in church? It's a C.S. Lewis word in his book. He's having a conversation with them, and, and he's talking about the queen of the underworld, which is a witch, which is symbolic of evil in the world. And in the conversation with the queen of the underworld, talking about what they're doing, she has this green powder that she can throw on somebody, and it will kind of make them drowsy. They don't realize what's going on in the world, and they kind of enjoy where they are, and they're still, and they just put up with it, even though it's not reality. I sometimes think that, that somebody's throwing that same powder on us today because we live with a clouded sense of reality. We go places like the mall and think somehow that's wonderful and beautiful. We buy new clothes and we buy new stuff and we think that's just enough. But the new wears off very quickly and the old comes upon it and we realize how unimportant it is. The witch convinces people that Narnia doesn't exist. That there is not a sun, moon, and stars. That, that Aslan, the great lion, who's a symbol of Jesus, is not real. And the people accept that. But in the middle of that, Puddleglum, and that's why I had to mention that name, suddenly refuses to accept that. And begins to pull out of the, this haze that, that they've been put under and looks at the reality of what's going on, and stands back and makes a statement to the witch that's incredible. And here's what he says to the witch. He said, one word, ma'am. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all these things. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as pretty poor to be a world. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right, but four babies playing a game can make a play world which will ruin the real world if we allow it. But the reality is I'm on Ashland's side. Even if there isn't any Ashland to lead it, I'm on his side and there is a Narnia because I wish to believe that there's a creator who wants more for me and the best for me. And I deny what you're doing. My brain tells me that the one that created me really loves me. And I want to encounter him because I don't like this encounter with you. So thanking you kindly for our time here and the meal you gave us, we're leaving this place because this is not what we desire. He said, not that our lives will be very long, maybe, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you have made it. You see, the world is a dull place. 
And it's a horrible place. And, and, and the best and the most beautiful that the world can come up with in Hollywood or New York or Chicago or wherever can never match what God has for us. Scripture tells us, I have not seen nor ear heard, nor has it come into the mind of man. The things that God has reserved for us, His children. I think it is time for the church to wake up to the greatness of what is coming. We don't need to be shy about it. We don't need to whisper in the corner. We need to let people know what the world is giving you is not real. Strangely enough, our mass media didn't mention that last year we had an epidemic of death uh, at the hands of a horrible drug, fentanyl. It's being abused more greatly than any other narcotic in the history of the world. An eighth of a million people died in America from fentanyl overdoses, many of them young people. Yet the media doesn't say that. They don't talk about the problems that are going on. The reality is many people use those drugs because the world they're looking at and the world they've been told is the best of the best has failed them, has left them hopeless and helpless. And they're looking for a city not made with men's hands. They're looking for a heaven that's real. They're looking for a future that they can focus on and move toward. But that's been stolen from them. You see, we are confident as believers that a great future awaits us. We know that. We're not terrified of that. And Satan, the evil one, loves to distract us from that. He loves to, to pull us away from heavenly things and cause us to look at earthly things. He loves to make Christians get in fights with one another and ridicule and criticize one another when the reality is we're all sinners saved by grace. None of us stands above another as supreme or superior. We're all given, though, a gift called the Holy Spirit of God. And that Holy Spirit will guide us and will bring us together and give us the unity that we need. Unity doesn't mean we all think alike. We don't all think alike. We're all very, very diverse and different in the way, way we think. But our unity is that as we come together, the Spirit of God within us, the Holy Spirit, is a conglomerate that can change the world that we're in. And we need to be that. We need to do that and we need to follow that. Let me quickly get into these five points because I've just got a few minutes to do this, but it's so important. The first reality of heaven is that it is new. Jesus declares, behold, I make all things new again. What he means by that is the newness that was made in, in the Garden of Eden, the freshness and the beauty that was there, the, the, the vitality and the life that was there was taken away in the fall. When Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, they didn't just fall. The curse was placed on all of creation. And because of that, we have a world that's scarred up. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. We've been living east of Eden since Adam and Eve sinned. And everything that we love and that is beautiful loses its beauty. Everything that looks new at one time will become old. I was looking through a magazine the other day before I threw it out, one from 1972 when I was 13 years old. And, and I'll never forget in the magazine, I turned to pictures of, of, of toys that I got as a, a kid that year. And you know what? They looked like antiques. They were antiques. They're 51 years old now. And I looked at the things that I used to love and I thought were beautiful and, 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 and 
They're no good anymore. That bicycle with the banana seat, did you have one like that, Jeff? Oh, we all did. I love the big tires, and, and I love the, uh, we'd stick playing cards in the, in the tires. Now, now, Terry, we didn't have playing cards in our house because they didn't believe in that. I had to borrow those from some of my Methodist neighbors. But I got them, and I put them in there. It made a noise. It made it sound like a real motorcycle. And I looked at all those things, and I thought, man, that's old. Let's leave it to Beaver. But I'm old. And times have changed. I look at young people sitting here today enjoying themselves in this room, and I couldn't do that when I was your age because I had to wear a polyester double-knit leisure suit to church. You remember how uncomfortable those things were? They didn't breathe. They were made to choke you. In fact, like I, I told my son one day, it, it was like taking a baggie and painting it red and wearing it. I mean, it was the most uncomfortable thing in the world. I'm old, and I realize that. I've lived a long time. But God is making all things new again. He's making it beautiful. We're returning to Eden, the place where everything began. That's what heaven is. Heaven will be a place that is real, that is substantial, that is there for our benefit. It's not a strange place. You ever have an aching to go to a place you've never been before? That place is called heaven. In our instinct, in our, in our inner DNA, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, we belong there. This world is not where we belong. We want to be happy here, but we're not. You build a house and you move into it and you love the beauty of it and suddenly you realize that your house is dying, that it's old. You understand that that which is working one day is broke the next. You understand that we have to get new cars because new cars become old cars. And they don't run anymore. And though John Friday's a miracle worker, he can't make every car run. There comes a time when he says, get rid of it. Start over. We live in that kind of world. It's a broken world. And we did the breaking. But the second reality I want you to realize is heaven is our home. It's where we go and where we belong. Jesus, talking of heaven, said this. He said, in my Father's house there are many rooms. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to do that, if I go to prepare and build this place for you, I will come again and take you myself to that place. You've got a home that's being built that's better than, than anything you could imagine. I had two compressors in my air conditioning system in my house until last week. One of them died. In fact, one of them died a year and a half ago, and, and I replaced it. It was about $1,400, and I thought, that's not too bad. The one I replaced last week, I got the bill for yesterday. Guess how much? Over $3,000. I don't like that air conditioner so well. It's getting too expensive. It's old. In heaven, you don't need air conditioning. You don't need heating. You don't even need lights in heaven. You know why? Because Jesus will illuminate everything in heaven. We won't have to worry about that. Heaven is being prepared just for us. You know, it talks about the bride, and I love that. We are the bride. We, we, we will be gathered together, and God will love us as a groom loves his bride. I performed many weddings in my lifetime, hundreds. Formed a lot of them here. 
And I've always noticed that when I come out with that scraggly, scared-to-death groom, we walk down these steps and stand right there, and, and he's nervous and he's fidgeting and can't stay still. When those doors open back there and the bride comes in, she never comes in in old clothes. Nothing's ever tattered or dirty. Her hair is perfect. Her makeup is perfect. And you know what most of the big burly guys that are so tough and they, they talk about, well, I'm going to play 18 holes of golf before I get married or I'm going to go deer hunting. They stand there and they blubber and they cry because they see their bride. And this is what they've been waiting for in life, that perfect family. Well, the groomsman is none other than our creator. And Jesus will be standing there, and we will be prepared, and we will be perfect, and we will be together forever. The reality is when, when that door opens to eternity, it will never close again. For God is preparing all things to suit us and to bless us. And we will understand that at that point we'll be in our element where we belong. The third reality is this is the right thing. It'll be a time that's different than the world we live in now. There'll be no distress. There'll be no age spots or wrinkles or ruin or rust or rot. There'll be no thirsting. There'll be no hungering. There will never be loneliness again or blindness or deafness. You won't have to worry about the inability to get about. That world will be perfect. No cancer or strokes or heart attacks or mental illness or no crime. It'll all be done away. Heaven will be perfect. No hospitals or prisons will be there. No accidents, no pollution. Oh, nobody to mislead you in the media. It'll be perfect. Nothing will go wrong in that place. All things will be set right by the one that made us and meant for us to be better. But the fourth reality is we will have identity there. You ever felt like you're a non-entity? That you're ignored or you're overlooked? Ever felt like somehow there's got to be something better in life? What you're feeling is a need for heaven. Sometimes in this big old world, we're just forgotten. I think that, that when we get to heaven, we're going to be very important people, all of us. You'll walk up to an individual and you'll know that's your great-great-great-great-grandmother. And you'll talk with her. And you'll celebrate in that. You'll recognize people as they are, who they were, and you'll have a relationship forever. I don't know who will have what job in heaven, but I've got a feeling, uh, Dale, that Margaret Griffin's going to be greeting everybody at the door, don't you? Nobody loved being a welcome wagon lady in Selma any more than her, and I've got a feeling in heaven, and she won't be leaning on that cane, and she won't have to stop talking. Because forever we can fellowship. I'm looking forward to that. I want to, I want to be in that place. I don't want to remain in this place forever. I want to have that kind of identity. But lastly, I want you to realize this. The fifth reality is God's presence will be there with us. 
The best thing about heaven is that God is there and all things will be done right and nothing will ever be taken away from us or destroyed. We'll be at peace forever. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase in the message, put it this way, and I, I like this so well. He said, it will be a place that is personal. God will no longer seem far away. He will be with us in every sort of way. And we will know the true joy of worship. Jeff, that's where you'll be busy. I get to retire in heaven. You get busier than ever. Because worship will continue on. And it will be worshiping the one, the only one that is worthy of worship. You know, one of our problems in the world today is we're far too, too easily pleased with dirt. You realize that? With dirt. Dirt's everywhere. We're made of dirt. We'll return to dirt. Our bodies will at one point. And we like this dirt. We buy something and it's beautiful, but eventually it returns to dirt. This dirt is an image of what God made perfect. And understand that. Randy Alcorn, in an article he wrote after he wrote the book Heaven, said this. He said, how it must wound the heart of the bridegroom to see us clinging to this roach-infested hovel called earth, dreading the thought of leaving it when he has hand-built a magnificent estate for us, a place beautiful and wondrous beyond measure. How we must let go of this world. I've met those people who have let go, and their eyes are fixed on a better place than this as they step into eternity. And it's like they're already there. And that's so exciting. A little girl was taking an evening walk with her father. And they were glancing at the sun as it set and the beauty of the sky and the clouds. And, and, and she just loved the beauty of it. And she said, Father, look, isn't that gorgeous? And he said, yes, it is. And she said this. She said, if this side of heaven is that beautiful, imagine what it's like on the other side where we're going to live. Set your thoughts on heaven, not on this earth. We're supposed to try to fix things while we're here and help people along and bring them to an understanding of faith, but this, this place is not our home for long, and it's growing old. I pray that heaven will be a place that's on your heart and in your mind often and always. Because one day you'll be there forever. And God will bless you beyond measure. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you give us the joy of understanding our future. And it's a beautiful one. You don't leave us hanging and doubting and wondering. You paint that beautiful portrait. And I pray that we will stay away from the words of, of mere men that try to describe that which is divine and heavenly. I pray that we would read your word and understand that it gives us the truth that will transform us forever. And may heaven be not just a hope, but for us a reality because we live as if we're already there. Give us a heart to do that, Lord. May we remain focused upon it. And may we be changed because the gift that you've given to us has given us a home forever there. For we pray this in your holy name, Lord.
Amen.